What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts oh hi i'm rachel zoe and my podcast climbing in heels is back and better than ever you might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush and Friendly Fire. That's right, it is the annual crossover edition of your favorite little show here and Friendly Fire, which is one of my favorite movie podcasts, uh, co-hosted by my pals Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. Uh, it's a great show, everyone, and I enjoy sitting down and talking to these guys about war movies every year. We did Platoon last year. If you haven't listened to that one, go check it out. We uh, did another Cabin Sesh different cabin this time. It's going to be, it's going to sound like uh, Adam's episode did uh, quite a few weeks ago. Uh, but, you know, I think we might just leave everything in there. I think there's some weed whackers at times, and I think a housekeeper comes by. So we may just leave it all in there as uh, window dressing. Uh, so we got together on uh, the old text thread, started talking about what movie to watch, and Ben suggested Tropic Thunder as a war movie. And Adam agreed, and I thought they were kidding. And I said, can we do a real war movie? (laughs) And it turns out they were serious. I guess they consider Tropic Thunder a real war movie, and maybe it is, for all I know. Uh, It's been a while since I've seen it. I guess it was war stuff in there. But a real war movie, everyone, is The Great Escape. Can we all agree on that? So that's what we went with, kind of one of the all-time classics. A really good movie. I've seen it a bunch of times over the years. And 
uh, had a little bit of a different take on this viewing than I normally do, as did uh, John Roderick. So check it out. Here are my pals, Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick of Friendly Fire on The Great Escape. Hello and welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that has put all its rotten eggs in one basket. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. And I'm Chuck Bryant. Hey, it's our annual <laughs> tradition of doing a crossover episode with Movie Crush, the great podcast hosted by Chuck. Hi, right. Chuck. Hi, Chuck, you're the rottenest egg in this basket. <laughs> I was waiting to introduce myself and for one of you to go, your papers, please. <laughs> <laughs> papers, bitte. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. So how's the sound? Good? Uh, I Leap hope so. Blowers? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it looks good on, on the little postage stamp size screen on our recording device. So. Great. Um, this is a movie that I had seen a bunch of times as a kid, but you said you'd never seen it before, right, Adam? First timer. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's, uh, does it hold up? Does it seem like a good movie to you? I mean, that's, that's the review portion of the show. Did you just, <laughs> just jump into the end, yeah. We don't have a lot of time here. I mean, <laughs> does it hold up considering you've never seen it before? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, you watch... Compared to like, the first time I never saw it, the second time was much better. There are lots of movies that, like, if you see them as a kid, are very meaningful to you, and if you are introduced them to them as an... I've heard... I've never seen Goonies, but I've heard that, like, it's not worth trying to get into it in your 30s, because... I want to spend an entire show interrogating your non-seeing of Goonies. <laughs> oh, interrogating drink. <laughs> I never saw Goonies either. Ooh. What? Uh, it was too late Can for we do a special episode new. that's just Goonies <laughs> yeah. with these two? That's a bit of a war movie. Wow. <laughs> Suddenly, your, your uh, definition of a war movie has loosened up. Well, you guys wanted to do fucking Tropic Thunder. Ch- Chuck was being a real snob about what we picked <laughs> oh, for this episode. <laughs> Let's do a real war movie. This is really a, a jailbreak movie more than anything. It really is. And I was struck by the, the like late motif and the theme song being really, really similar to the one in Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. yeah. The uh, the little like whistling theme that they come back to over and over again. So much so that at the at the end of our River Kwai episode, I whistled the wrong song, <laughs> and it was this song that I was whistling. Wow! How did you know to do that? He I just don't know. He, he when he was a kid, he had an album of all the great Jailbreak World War Two movie themes <laughs> by Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. Also, an album of nothing but whistling songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder why that is. Like, was there? W- like in the sixties where they're like, Yeah, this is the kind of music you have to have in a prison like a war prison jailbreak movie. Yeah, kind of jaunty. Cause although this movie isn't very I was about to say you don't want to bring anyone down, but there's not not a lot in this movie to uh, here we no, go thank again, you. guys. No, no thank today, thank you. Thank you. That happened last year too, remember? Yeah, the uh, housekeeping just came by. At the uh, <laughs> Academy Awards in 63, was this one of the best songs? Like, they just had a whistler out there on stage? I don't know. There is no whistling, though. And you guys keep saying it. whistling. It's, it's, not... it's Fife. It's Fife music. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but this was the heyday of the great movie score, the the the, the score that would define, you know, the, yeah. the with super catchy music that... Right. That, uh, and, and this score is kind of insane. Because it, beep, it beeps along for a little bit in in the fife, and then all of a sudden it gets really dark and serious, and then it pops back up into a different kind of second theme. 
With a three-hour movie, you can really like dig into a lot of different emotional territories and then like recover from them and go somewhere else. And this movie really does that. Like it, it has moments of like beauty and joy and moments of like real darkness. Does it read to you as a comedy? Adam, seeing it for the first time, does it? Did it feel like a? Did it feel comedic? It didn't veer all the way into comedy, but it definitely got out of the lane of serious war movie POW piece. There's a little Hogan's Heroesy feel to parts of it for yeah. sure, where like you never feel like the in the camp that they are truly like threatened. And I'm always amazed, it's sort of like with Hogan's Heroes too, with these camps that. They're just allowed, you know, from the moment this film opens, they're planning their escape. Yeah. And they have a big meeting in the big meeting room. And there's no, so much no like trade craft to, to that. It's so awesome. Like oh, yeah. every like everything they try is like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> and then the- Yeah, they're really supportive yeah. of each other in a way that I found surprising. <laughs> Although Edinburgh was a bit of a dick at times. Yeah. That was uh, his job. My God, he was yeah. the big X. <laughs> that's true. The big X. Can't mess around. He said, ladies and gel- gentlemen, welcome. <laughs> To Stalag Seventeen. <laughs> oh God! Uh, but but that you know the 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 premise of those Luftwaffe prison camps was that they treated the prisoners really well because of this whole like aristocratic yeah. to the manner born uh, quality that that the Air Force had still. Is it airmen jail airmen and army jails army? Is that how it works? That was the idea. Yeah, that and the navy oh, navy sends navy to Davy Jones locker. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah the premise was right that the Luftwaffe was hosting the enemy combatants, the, the, their their air uh, peers. Oh. They have a much better working relationship with their jailers in this movie than they did in Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I don't think you up, see them saluting each other. It's as... right. But they straight up say uh, in that first meeting between the big, who kind of looks like you, Ben, weirdly. Did you guys pick up on that? The the, <laughs> the, head the of... main Nazi? God no, 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 no. The the every other, bad the Nazi looks like Ben a little yeah. bit? Yeah, yeah I've noticed guy. that. Yeah. He, uh, oh, the British guy. Yeah, I do look British. <laughs> they have that. Uh, I don't know. I just if I would have said you're a French, you'd have a heart on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they had that first meeting where he's basically like, you know, you know, we're going to try and escape. Like, what do you expect us to not do that? That is our sworn duty as officers. And the Germans guys kind of like, yeah, I understand. Yeah, they make like, the case. <laughs> they make the case that it's their sworn duty because it will like tie up resources and material that the Germans would otherwise be inflicting yeah. on the front. And I don't really feel like they pay that off in the actual jailbreak scenes. Like there's like Steve McQueen for sure does his part. Sure. Like he is lifting his weight in terms of like drawing troops. Like a hundred guys at least. Yeah. And trucks and stuff. But everybody else is just getting nabbed by the Gestapo. Right. Well, the what's interesting about the geography of this movie is that the, the Stalag Luft three or whatever, wherever they actually were was in Silesia. Like it was in, Poland, and they. Why'd you look at Adam? Because Adam is uh, the resident uh, Polish authority. It's in Poland, right, Adam? It is. Yeah. yeah. They said Germany in the movie, though. Well, because it was in. Oh, but occupied Poland. Well, in... subsumed into the oh, German right. nation. No, kind of the opposite. It was Prussia that became <clears throat> that after the war turned into Poland, but All traditional right. Prussian territory, but way, way east. 
So in that early scene where we see the Russian guys with the fur hats going out to chop wood. Right. Which is weird because we never see them again. And it seemed like at that moment they sort of lived in the camp or something. I don't. I, I never didn't understand why those guys were there. And, well, it was yeah. like a fresh built camp. And my theory was that they were like the people that built it and now they're leaving. Nice. They were just finishing up the punch list. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, so those guys, you know, if, if this, if, I mean, taking place in Poland, like it's, they were sort of a natural... Maybe not locals, but yeah. it wasn't that far. Anyway, yeah. so in the course of these guys escaping, we see them make it to Paris. We see them make it to Switzerland, yeah. make it to the Baltic Sea. Coburn's going to Spain. So for these guys to have to like spread all across Europe like that, yeah. it, and then we see them one by one get nabbed, it would have meant that people, were, that cops were on the lookout for them. Troops were chasing them kind of throughout Germany, and that's pretty. That would expend some resources. The camp didn't read as Polish to me because the barbed wire fence wasn't inside the barracks. Mm-hmm. You just wanted to. You wanted to get there first. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm going to take that one, and now you don't get any. But your guy was the coolest. One of the coolest guys in the movie, the Polish guy, Charles Chuck, Chuck Brunson. Man, how handsome! A, how handsome is he? Yeah, at he that beautiful. age. And how fucking handsome is James Garner, man? Yeah. I mean, I just saw him, and he's like 35, 36. I'm like, he looks like fucking George Clooney. Yeah. Everybody in this movie, all the actors are at least 30. I think Steve McQueen was probably 33. Garner was 35. Yeah. Bronson was like 42. Already by this, he point. was forty-two and jacked, like a jacked forty-two <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah, I uh, have a very distinct memory of watching this movie when I was a kid, and my mom leaning over when Charles Bronson was on on screen, all sweaty and muscly, going, "He was kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger of my childhood." <laughs> <laughs> wow, oh. except five four. Yeah, <laughs> right? sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at one point, Steve McQueen says that he's like just got out of college or is in college. There's a there's a lot of of um, of age fudging, yeah, <laughs> because these guys probably most of them would have been about twenty three, twenty four, right? Yeah. yeah, that's true. Well, maybe he got held back. Right. He, well, he took all those summers off racing motorcycles and yeah. it took him a little bit longer. <laughs> there was a moment when this movie didn't have much Steve McQueen in it, mm-hmm. from what I read, and McQueen fought the director for more him. <laughs> and McQueen's a guy who was taking a limo to and from the set every day. Like, he had a lot of power at this time in his career. You remember the famous, there's a famous story about him making a movie with Yul Brenner, And uh, every time he was in the background of a scene, he was always uh, futzing with, he was either futzing with his gun. It was like a Western. Yeah. He was always loading his gun or, or um, like, famously kind of uh, oh, playing he, with a cigar or something. And eating an orange with the peel still on. <laughs> to the extent that Yul Brenner complained, like, this guy's trying to steal every scene he's in. Right. Because, you're, you know, your eye would be drawn to the background. What the fuck is Steve McQueen doing? So he, he knew what he was doing. Uh, I love how early on in the film, though, when they immediately they're there and they're immediately checking out how to get out. And yeah. that one guy just jumps in the fucking Christmas tree truck. Yeah. <laughs> it's so lo-fi. Boy. He's like, all right, I've been here for three and a half minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here, guys. Low-key, one of the scariest stunts in movie history is the guy stabbing right. the, the heap of, of Christmas trees with a giant pitchfork and then a guy that's like 
yeah. six inches behind where he's stabbed, going like, I'm going to get out, I'm going to get out. <laughs> yeah, you know the safety back then wasn't exactly, they were like, where is he? Oh, I don't know, just stab low. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, like the, those opening moments have a ton of comedy. Like I love the the uh, the smash cut when like Steve McQueen and the mole are describing their escape plan right. of, of pushing the dirt behind them by yeah. tunneling three feet under the wall. They're like, going over this plan, and they're like, that's so stupid, it just might work. And then smash cut to them going into the cooler, just caked in mud. Yeah. Like, what a great moment. McQueen, McQueen's definitely the comic relief of this film, weirdly. Yeah. Right. In the, they're in the wow scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Americans, right? I mean, he's yeah. the he's he stands in for all Americans there. So yeah. he's got to have that swagger. Yeah. That's a good point. How many Americans? There's the three, Garner, well, yeah. I guess the three guys that do the Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah, Garner McQueen and the guy whose job it is to throw McQueen's baseball glove back at him every time he gets right. recaptured. That motif. He clearly doesn't throw That was the a baseball. real mean Joe Green moment right there. <laughs> hey, kid. Catch. Yeah. That was a little before your time, Adam. Nice. Uh... No, I was right. I'm a, I'm a collector of pop culture <laughs> trivia. Well, that, that, that scene was crazy to me because... For Steve McQueen to leave his baseball glove behind suggests that he doesn't think he's going to make it. Because that is a oh. great glove. Yeah. He's had it his whole life. I Nicely broken in. A, I read that that was an anachronistic glove. It didn't, didn't, they didn't look like that during the war years. Uh, is that your moment of pedantry or just no, a warm-up? That is a moment of pedantry. but <clears throat> Feels uh, like it might have been his grandfather's glove. Don't put the little... The little sound effect on that, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the official one. <laughs> Uh, I was hoping that everyone would come in here with... I could actually do my moment of pedantry right now. It wouldn't be terrible. <laughs> well, let's hear it. Um, so at the conclusion of the March of 76, the Americans present to the British with invitations to join for a celebratory drink. Oh, I should preface this because we have movie crush listeners. Right. We always do like a, a moment of pedantry, which is something that I found in the IMDb goof section about the film that uh, somebody took exception to. And I try to find like the most pedantic one I can, I can find usually. That doesn't have to do with epaulettes. Yeah, so <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the 4th of July uh, set piece. And uh, they, uh, the Americans uh, present invitations for a celebratory drink. At the door uh, to the hut, Goff declares, down with the British, to which Roger and Mac enthousi- enthusiastically reply, here, here, and quite right too. Goff's error was saying British when the correct usage would be the English. In this context, the appeal of an inebriated goff to a bemused Roger, based on South African Roger Bushell <laughs> oh, and God. the Scottish MacDonald, would be sufficient to excite a moment of humor <laughs> between the three historical enemies of England. Oh, wow. That's so this pet this pet well done. took exception to the construction of a joke right. that a drunk guy made. <laughs> <laughs> well done, though. I mean, he's right, right? He's not. He's not right. I don't think. I think he's wrong. Because we can assume it's a he. But I just uh, like yeah, the so. the phrase, the excitement of humor. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I have done the math on how jokes work. <laughs> Surely met- you have been at the pointed end of the. Uh, it's uh, British, not English. It's English, not British. Mm. Uh, internet. Pedant stick. That was before I started muting everyone on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I had to mute a guy today that called me a ding dong. 
because John Roderick calls me a ding dong all the time, and now people on the internet think it's fine to call me a ding dong. You just muted him just because he called you a ding dong. Yeah. It was a ding dong of affection. I, I've taken an extremely liberal approach to my use of the mute function. Well done, boys. Yeah. Not even dingling. Didn't even use dingling, which oh, yeah. is slightly less bad, I guess. I don't know. Uh, how great does this Panavision look, though? It's spectacular. Yeah. It's also just a great, uh, a great transfer to HD. Yeah. Of, uh, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful movie. I don't think I'd ever seen it in high def, but it looks Well, it, it really shines. You know, in the camp, you can only do so much, but it really shines once they get out of there. Yeah. And yeah. you get, like, those flying the shots. The territorial and stuff is great. Stuff. Really gorgeous. Those sequences really struck me because I wasn't conscious of feeling like closed in and confined in the first two hours of the movie but that's kind of like the three the the you know the mark between two and three hours when they all get out and it is like suddenly like the tone of the music changes and you feel like like free and there are these like long meditative moments where like the two tunnel kings are like in a rowboat and they just hold the shot for 20 seconds while they row across some beautiful Bavarian river. And you're just like, wow. Which was a great, like, as it turns out, plan. Yeah. There's no one out there. They were... I kept wanting uh, Attenborough and and the other guy to hide. Just like, go hide somewhere for a few days. Quit just walking around cities. Yeah, You've got a very noticeable birthmark on your face. (laughs) Just lay low, man. Put Even your... the worst police sketch artist would be able to like make something that looked a little bit like him. Yeah, yeah. He's got this here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think about the the Attenborough hat tilt? One of the better hat tilts. It's a great hat tilt. It's yeah. a great hat. Um, I feel like it might spared have, no expense. It might have been a little <laughs> jaunty Boy. for Nazi Germany. You know, they had a lot of uniform jauntiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nazis did. Uh, in, in the sort of so, black... so they're not all bad. No, <laughs> not no, everything about bad. them is but, bad. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's sort of the black trench coat uh, era of German civilians, and that that hat looks a little bit like Br- New York Broadway, nineteen thirty nine. Right. I wondered about it. Yeah. Well, he also tilts his fedora once he gets out, so that's his move for sure. Yeah. He's he's the only hat tilter on the on the side of the Allies. Well, except if you uh, if you zoom back or if you rewind to the to the first two hours of the film, his Royal Air Force service cap is also tilted at a jaunty angle throughout yeah. the film. Oh yeah, yeah. He's really like, is that what you were referring to in the first place? Sure. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were talking about his civilian hat. Oh no, both. Yeah, he's got hat tilt going the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's his move. They, so the civilian clothes are all made out of uniforms that they like put boot black on. A little bit of suspension stuff. of disbelief going with how much just raw material they needed. I love the like level of sophistication they bring to the jailbreak, though. It's like it's totally unbelievable, and it's yeah, and it's a real story, right? Like they like this actually kind of happened, right? It is, but this is way fictionalized. It's a real story, and and I think the the uh, the moment of pedantry that was true at the time uh, was that what got left out was how many German civilians actually helped, including guards, helped hmm. them in their escape. So a lot of those documents that they actually used weren't forgeries. They were just brought in by 
German civilians and yeah. clothes and tools and maps and all that stuff. It really felt like the ferret would become a composite character for that type of person, but they never position the ferret that way. Yeah, and I just think kind some, of a useful idiot. Yeah. Some of it was that the Luftwaffe, just like the German <clears throat> Navy, was not full of Nazis. So there were a lot of people, that, because the, they were these sort of right. upper class Yeah, Luger is jobs. definitely like disgusted by what happened to the 50 that get murdered. At oh, the which end. one's Luger? Is he... He's the com- commandant of oh, the camp, right. and he gets replaced at the end by... Yeah. Well, he's super contemptuous of the high Hitler, how Hitler, like you can yeah. see yeah. from the very beginning, That's he's interesting. he thinks of himself as Just a... not as Hitler-y as you guys. I don't want to say Heil oh, anything. all right, Heil, Hitler. <laughs> now, was that true to how it could have been? Absolutely. And what about what I also wondered about was not to both sides it. Fuck, <laughs> I'm against the Germans in World War II, but there were a lot uh, that weren't. This is a great movie if you were against the Germans in World War II because you get to see a lot of them get kicked in the teeth and stuff. <laughs> but what about the the notion that the prisoners had things that the guards wouldn't have, like yeah, red, cho- red Cross packages, chocolate and, and coffee, and they could get mail from home. Interesting, but and they didn't just take that and be like, "I'll be taking this coffee." No, because of the Geneva Convention and the Red Cross. I mean, there were all these rules. What they didn't have was their own luggage and their own personal items. That was greatly exaggerated in this film. That they yeah. would have baseball mitts and yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes sense, I guess. But that's the it's whole bad. notion with the ferret was yeah. Uh, that I mean, that be, kind of that's that kind he of could a be fun bribed scene with, with cigarettes and chocolate. Jimmy I, Garner basically molesting him. <laughs> trying to shove co- chocolate down his pants. What an I'm awesome come up for those uh, those Russian uh, wood woodcutters at the beginning, where they oh, get a yeah. bunch of cigarettes for like their axe and their and their hat and their coat, and then yeah. they get the ha- axe hat and coat back immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that did not. Hey, take free very cigarette, long. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a ton of sophistication on the. Ally side, but also there's a ton of sophistication on the German side in terms of like nabbing these guys and like catching the escapes. Like the case is made that this is like an elite unit of prison guards, right? Right, right. These are the best of the Luftwaffe's best. Although I think all the guards and all the people that would have been in the Luftwaffe and working at this prison camp would have been stationed here because they weren't, they didn't have flight status. Was it a is this a plum gig? Like, because they, the, the ferret's constant fear is getting sent to the Russian front. Right. And I was like, yeah, this seems way better than that. Well, the commandant says, like, let's just wait out the war here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty. Like all of us. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. a pretty tempting offer. Like, oh, right. Just wait out the war. Hmm. No. <laughs> We're going to escape and make your life hell and get shot in the end. Yeah. You're going to get fired. And probably killed. But the weird thing about the, the, the that that in a war full of atrocity, murders, uh, millions getting murdered, there were these little pockets of just like tally ho. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is good sport. Um, what? Yeah, that, like that, it suggests a fraternity of airmen. Yeah, and and like a a higher class of of respect. And you see it in you see it in war movies where you, the the ship will get sunk by the sub. And the captain will be welcomed in and, you know, given a cup of coffee. Like, all these rules of engagement that um, that make war seem fun. <laughs> I mean, this definitely had that feel of... Uh, it's one of the least threatening World War II prison camp films. And yeah. fairly nonviolent. 
in its depiction of of death. I mean, when the prisoners are marched out of the truck and <clears throat> shot with the machine gun, you only see the machine gun. Yeah. For example, and yeah. like I think the most disturbing depiction of someone dying was the Donald Pleasance character and the blood that went all, all over James Garner's face. Like right. it's a very uh, for as much implied violence as there is, yeah. as there is in the film, there isn't a lot of like disturbing, bloody death. Well, and no it. attempt was made to make that blood look like blood. Yeah, either it looks like pomegranates. Yeah, yeah it looks like Garner <laughs> was eating a delicious cherry pie <laughs> out in that field. Boy, you knew Donald Pleasance was going to be a problem from the very beginning when he walks in and talks about being a bird watcher. You're just yeah. like, oh boy, this guy's. He's yeah. great in this movie. <laughs> Apparently, I only was familiar with him uh, through the Halloween films. I'd oh, never yeah. seen him play a role like this before. Yeah. Apparently, he played Himmler in the sequel to this movie. He oh, like switched sides in the sequel. The Greater Escape. <laughs> it's like I think there's. It's literally called The Great Escape Two. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he was the president of the United States in Escape from New York. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's what but, I, but, uh, but weirdly, Donald Pleasance was actually in the Royal Air Force, shot down over Germany. And imprisoned in a in a wartime prison camp. Are you serious? Yeah. So wow. and there's a story while they were filming this movie where he started to kind of offer some suggestions to the director, like, oh, you know, it'd be a, a good if the lamp hung like so. And the director was like, "Thanks, kid. Stay in school," <laughs> and chased him out. And then somebody was like, "You know, old boy." He actually was in the camps. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he was like brought in and given the, you know. Right. Uh, really, he, he added a lot of, of veritas. And he went, hey, how'd you like to pay Himmler in the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> but, but going through all of the actors, they all served in, in the Marines or the Army or the Air Corps. Like this whole, this whole cast is that World War II generation. Yeah. I think uh, Garner is maybe the youngest and he was in Korea. Really? But a lot of a lot of them were World War II vets, various I, theaters. I read that uh, Charles Bronson was a coal miner before he became an actor. And so he actually, similar to Pleasance, brought a bunch of like tunneling technique to the, to the film that they <laughs> didn't have before. He was like a teenage coal miner, right? Yeah. Like and legit and... claustrophobic. Yeah. Which is... Oh, really? A, a weird plan B. Like, if this acting thing doesn't work out, I can always go back to coal mining. <laughs> hey, don't like tight spaces. <laughs> you know he got his, where he got his name, right? That story. Because hmm. he was Charles, you know, insert Polish name. Rosanskowitz. <laughs> and he, uh, he went to audition at the Paramount Pictures and went through the Bronson Gate and they asked him what his name was, and that's where he got it, just from the you know the bronze cool. entrance of Paramount Pictures. That's a cool story. Yeah, his kind Polish of a... last name was just C Z K C Z K C Z K. I kept thinking of the Reservoir Dogs line too, from uh, the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, he's like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. <laughs> I have kind of a three tunnels theory of this movie. Hmm. Mm. Oh boy. <laughs> Tom go on. They never go in the in 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 Dick Tunnel, do they? Sure don't. They spend all the time in Tom Tunnel and Harry Tunnel. That's right. It's too bad. That would have been great for us. You need to prepare Harry Tunnel before entry, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so which one gets shut down with the discovery of the coffee by the ferret? Tom Tunnel. 
Okay. That's Tom, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised at how little, like, after that... I mean, there was no lockdown. It was just sort of like, well, we, we found this, and I'm sure you guys weren't doing anything else. Yeah. Carry on. Well, it's, that was a major operation, that tunnel. That's kind of astonishing that they had three going at the same well, time. Well, that's true. I guess that was the point. I, I was surprised that the Germans didn't do a little bit more, like, in-your-face dunking on them yeah having discovered their tunnel when it was nearing you. completion yeah <laughs> just like <laughs> there's not even a hint of a rifle butt smashed against the face of a guy no. who lives in those barracks nope they all just come out and go did you miss light. that part of the story it like the darkness movie. of it the thing is there's no the, there's a even though it's not a comedy the movie is extremely light. We don't really. We get a little bit of backstory of everybody. It's kind of an Ten minutes from movie. the end, you're reminded. Oh yeah, Nazis are evil. Yeah, right. right. People could die, but but it's there's n- everyone is friends. There's not a single competition between anyone in the camp. Yeah. Nobody is a traitor. Nobody is a, a no. Nobody's a coward. Even there are a couple of guys that have some issues. But uh, they're not played like Bronson. His fear is not played as cowardice, right? Right. It 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 almost upsets the apple cart. But anyway, you never get. There's no there's no actual tension, and it's a little bit it's a little bit unreal in the sense that it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a it's a, a a cast of like fifteen big stars. There's six hundred extras. And everybody's a hero. Yeah, they're uh, they're having a great time. I, I mean, like if you if you believed that they're like focusing one hundred percent of their energy on the escape attempt, you couldn't also hold in your mind that they were like growing enough potatoes to distill three huge jugs of moonshine. You know, <laughs> it takes a long time to grow a potato. And that many potatoes. Yeah. They do interesting things with the passage of time in this film, like with the raking of their mm-hmm. of their plots, and then a few scenes later you see some growth there. Like they are suggesting time passing here. Yeah, I could never in an tell interesting way. when it was because they were singing Christmas carols, but it was also Fourth of July. It should have been really cold during the Christmas carol singing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, I feel like it was all. I can't. T- I don't know how much time elapsed yeah. at all. Like yeah, that it, was tough. It, and I feel like the director just didn't care. It seemed basically. like wherever they shot this was super far north because the light is like it was outside s- Munich, super angly. Like yeah, it was, there was a studio uh, in Munich, and they built this like kind of at the edge of the the woods next to the studio. So kind of right beside this is a big you know film lot. Wow, that's why it was so beautiful when they when. The, after the escape, when we see them, oh, yeah, they're in Bavaria. They're in Bavaria, gorgeous. right? Yeah, not like they're in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Did you guys pick up on James Coburn being Australian at all? Oh, I picked up on what a uh, like Mary Poppins, Dick Van Dyke <laughs> level bad accent he was rocking. There was, I thought he was American. There was really no hint of an Australian accent. What's interesting is I don't think they gave him very many lines. He yeah. he's in the movie a lot and he's he's doing a lot, but 
he he really chokes his lines back because I think he recognizes and everybody recognizes that he's not he did not nail the accent. I expected him to fuck up everything. Like they spent a lot of time on boy, his big bag is going to be a problem. Like oh, in right. the, the hole, the and I'm truck. like, oh shit, he's the guy that's going to blow it for yeah. everyone. What was in the bag? Why right. was it so important? Yeah, I don't know. That was where the MacGuffin was. Yeah, he made. They needed out. that for Pulp Fiction. How about that pump though that he made? That's pretty cool. The bellows, cool. yeah, yeah. That was cool. Like you had, I mean, I never really considered what tunneling out means, but you know, having to create like a mine shaft, basically, yeah, support it, get air in there, get light in there. They didn't show it, but there was a scene where he constructed another pump in his barracks. <laughs> you know, for alone time. This one's just for me. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my Australian cock. <laughs> <laughs> Oi. Good day, mate. Um, the uh, the concept of the tunnel falling on you, so scary. Yeah. And I feel like the maybe the movie undercuts that a little bit by just dumping like one bag of potting soil on somebody <laughs> when they need to have that effect. Yeah. Like that would be like pretty crushing, right? If you look at the, you can go see pictures of the camp where they where this actually took place, and they have outlined the the tunnel dimensions on the ground, so you can kind of oh, walk wow. around and look at what where the tunnel started and where it ended, and it's insane. It is insanely long. Yeah, and to imagine being in there where your shoulders are touching, your head is touching, like there's just just you're not really even enough room. Definitely not enough to sit up for that distance. And the idea that any amount of potting soil would fall on you, I was just, I was crossing and uncrossing my legs through all of those. Scenes. I was not expecting Bronson to pull off the the pathos of the lights going out and him being stuck in the tunnel. Oh, yeah. But that was legit scary. Yeah. I, he and James Garner really steal the movie for me in terms of like realness of performance. Mm -hmm. They just yeah. were so subtle. And and like you know, Garner Garner doesn't have anything like super deep to sink his teeth into like that. But like all his like little kind of messing with the with the ferret, the ferret, the yeah. mole, the, the mole. No, oh, the, the ferret. ferret. Yeah, the, yeah the, the guy. The mole was the, the you know Scott all the who... like mind games he plays on the German guard and stuff, yeah. and and the kind of like casual bravado he is. Like hey, I uh, I got all those documents that are impossible to get. Here they are. <laughs> like right, uh, like. Those two performances were just like totally my favorites in the movie. Apparently, he actually was the scrounger in his unit in the Korean War. Oh, really? <laughs> cool. Which, and I wasn't—I I had never really heard the term. Is it a method? Most actor. people forget that. Yeah, as, yeah, that's right. Most people forget <laughs> James Garner was the scrounger. Uh, but it's a great—it's a great nickname to have. It's a great job in any heist or yeah. caper. Yeah, like I'll be the scrounger. Yeah. It's uh, the like the Shawshank Redemption thing. Like the guy who can get things is like serves the most useful purpose and is often like the most fun in the group. Right. Who can because, magically just produce. Yeah. And they also, because that character also always has to have some level of charm. Yeah. Because the yeah. shit has to come through the guards most, yeah. in most cases. That day, Danny the Tunnel King crawled through <laughs> 500 feet of potting soil, <laughs> came out clean on the other side. All right. Not bad. <laughs> the cool, the cool, it was bad. King. It was bad. <laughs> 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think I was kind of disappointed, not disappointed, I'd seen this a few times, but I'd forgotten how sort of jokey McQueen was. Like, this is the least cool Steve McQueen part. He was not I, McQueen cool. He was, was kind of jokey. I was really and... surprised by a couple of his facial expressions in this film. Like when they're about to leave the tunnel and he pops up and he realizes that they're short. Yeah. And McQueen scrabbles back down. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, I need the rope. And then he like presents the case in the tunnel for the new plan, the plan B. They they stay on him for a moment and he like makes his pitch and he's like <laughs> <laughs> he makes this weird clown face <laughs> yeah. about it. It I don't know what that was about. He was making a lot of those choices throughout the yeah. film. I mean, he shines with the motorcycle stuff. That's when he becomes sure. cool. And all that stuff is genuinely fucking cool. Yeah. To see, like, it's clearly him. He didn't do the jump. 
yeah. which at the time was like one of the greatest stunts ever performed. Yeah. Just that jump over the barbed wire. I think it's still considered a pretty great stunt. Yeah, like when you think about the kind of motorcycles they had, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a stunt cycle. They just like painted this big triumph or whatever green. <laughs> the choice of composition for that jump, I think, is so great because like Sturgis was never... Uh, he never thought about A-teaming that sequence. Right. He like shot it wide at like three quarters, like a little bit above. Like uh-huh. you see the whole thing. Yeah. And its realism is like unquestioned. It's great. Yeah. No, no trickery involved. Yeah. I love how they made that barbed wire. Did you read about this? No. Like Sturgis had everyone on the entire crew from like crafty to camera people to electricians uh, make rubber barbed wire barbs and then tie them to a longer piece of rubber. Just like in their spare time. Yeah. And so that length of barbed wire that's jumped and then landed in later uh, is all rubber. It's all rubberized and it's made by the entire crew like a a quilt. (laughs) That's pretty cool. It is really fucked up to see him like languishing in the... Yeah. He really sells it. Yeah. I had a, uh, a, a experience as a kid where I was like on a camping trip or something and did not, had never encountered the concept of barbed wire before and tried you to jump over You escaped from the tennis academy? And like, I was like really squirming. Listen to that, John. Raised without barbed wire. Oh, can you mm. imagine what that would have been like? <laughs> That's called privilege, folks. <laughs> Just free Roman. I laugh, but we had barbed wire. We had a barbed wire dog pen. So, wow. I mean, it wasn't all. Well, it wasn't goats. razor wire. We found out last had, night you had goats. Had goats and dogs in the same pen. Goats that you showed. It's pretty interesting. Dirty magazines too. <laughs> we won't. We won't get into that. <laughs> uh, what was your take on the mole? Sort of a underused character i think in some ways there seemed to be a lot more like consciousness of what his mental status was on the like leadership part than they show on screen like everybody's like you know he's close to breaking i know good boy and i'm like is he (laughs) it didn't seem like that he seems all right to me he was starting to yeah starting to come unraveled he was spending all that time that bravado time in the cooler but they never show any of that they don't but but i think it's got to be it's got to be harder to sit in that cooler for 20 days right. than it looks. And, and uh, Steve McQueen was, was, was making the case, kind of, again, like, uh, like Bridge on the River Kwai, like, I can take it. Right? Yeah. Put me in the cooler over and over. I don't care. I, I would say that that cooler is 20% worse if you're in the one next to Steve McQueen bouncing his fucking <laughs> baseball. <laughs> yeah. That's what drove him mad. Yeah. <laughs> that fucking baseball. You know that baseball is driving him batty, old boy. I like that the mole had a molish face. <clears throat> he really looked like his nickname to me. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you hate the Scottish people? <laughs> Not all Scots. <laughs> um, the, uh, the guard in the cooler was like, boy, you really ha- can't have any job other than German soldier. <laughs> With a face like that, I don't know if this is true or not, but my feeling was that the that the soldier that ultimately captured Steve McQueen in the barbed wire yeah. was that guy. Oh, and I didn't rewind to put it all together, but it really felt like they they lingered on the the soldier's face. That's some nice head cannon, and it was like, oh, it's him. God, that guy has some bone structure, huh? Yeah, yeah. I'm not I sure if that guy. guy was the guy, but. How many guys can there be? I'm going to scrub through and see if I can verify. You guys keep talking. Scrubbing through. I feel like I'd seen that ferret guy before. What has he... What has he been in? All these dudes were in everything. Robert Groff. 
I thought, I mean, they all had German accents, which is for the time a little different because, you know, famously the sort of British accent for any German. Right. But, uh, works they, less well if everybody, yeah, they really made the British. distinction, I think. And I think even had some real Germans like playing some of these roles. Yeah. Yeah. I think like a couple of the Germans had had like experiences similar to the jobs that they were portraying also. Yeah. Wartime experience. Do you feel like it was too long? Ha! Yes! Three was hours it? long. I think it's a different German that captures Stephen King. A different Crane. German. Okay. Yeah. But is it too long? Tell me if you agree. It does feel like the it dragged a little bit. There's that guy, and then where's the other guy? I don't know. Those are the two guys. All right. Oh, the two guys side by side? Yeah. Oh. Anyways. Uh, it's long, but I feel like it's... It's like the summer movie event... Of 1968? 63. What's the difference, guys, honestly? <laughs> there's an enormous difference between 1963 and 1968. Say, yeah. Whereas there is no difference between 1994 and 1997. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Uh, I felt like it did, uh, even though I'd seen this movie a few times, I felt like it dragged a little bit for the first time. I was aware of how long that first two hours was. Without a lot of like, it's kind of repetitious in parts with the cooler stuff. And uh, I felt like they could have kind of gotten through that a little quicker. Yeah. The payoff of all that hard work being the tunnel, the, the, the getting everybody out scene where we see all the work that we've watched meticulously put together for two hours. Then we, then we start to see it unfold. And there's yeah. really nothing that they build in the first two hours that we don't see it employed in that scene, the pump, the ventilation, right. the ID cards, the, you know, like each thing then has its reappearance. Right. right. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not sure we needed, so, I mean, I, it, it feels like one of those things if you'd taken, if you'd taken a minute here, a minute there, a minute here, a minute there. Right. You could have made it tighten, shorter. Tighten it up by half an hour or something. Yeah, but there wasn't any one thing, there wasn't a character you didn't want to see or any one thing you didn't There care aren't about. any scenes that feel like they're, fat though you know like i feel like every scene kind of unfolds at a at a pace that feels right to me it's just that there's a lot of scenes like there's so many set pieces like i feel like everybody gets their feature yeah it might be the kind of movie that's tough to cut stuff from because you know each each scene kind of like leads right into the next like there's there's so much connective tissue in the script like the Fourth of July scene leading to the leading to Tom being discovered by the Germans and and like the that like emotional arc is it doesn't work if you cut out the all the like um, you know the fun fun and games with distilling the the moonshine which is the scene right before it you know so I think I just could have used more threat and menace although clearly Sturgis was going for just sort of a light adventure film. Yeah. Like that wasn't the movie he was making, but I could have used more cooler time of like despair and maybe the Germans really shaking them down after they find the first tunnel. And it was all just sort of Hogan's heroes. Drugs. It's all very light. <laughs> Do Is- you think that tone for so long makes the moment where they're executed outside the truck uh, more acute? Like, do you think that really fucked people up in 63? Probably. 
Because, you know, and, and then kind of comes out say, of nowhere, right? I've never felt more alive. was like <laughs> one of the last things he says yeah. before they get mowed down. That was pretty tough. And we get that contrast that, again, you do see in Hogan's Heroes, which is that when the Gestapo arrives, you're, you're reminded, yeah. oh, there are baddies out there. And these guys over. are bad. Yeah. You guys know what Hogan's Heroes is? Yeah. Okay. It's the uh, don't TV, want to anything. TV show that was kind of a copy of Stalag 17. Yeah, right? we watched Stalag 17 and talked about Hogan's Heroes. And oh, that, that's right. And Hogan right. was the mug that Conan O'Brien had on his desk for a long time, right? <laughs> oh, no. He had Eisenhower, I think. Wasn't that an Eisenhower mug? I thought that was Colonel Clink that he had oh, was on, it? on his desk, yeah. <laughs> Is this going to segue into a conversation about... Uh, the sexual proclivities of uh, Bob Crane. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll always do five tight minutes on Bob Crane. <laughs> is it yeah. also that like the scariness of Nazis is a more is is more like contemporary in 1963? Like, is it still? Is it like is are is a Western audience still like trying to kind of dispel some of the? a horror of World War II by making a, a lighter movie like this in 1963? That, that was a, it was a gradual realization. I, we've talked about before over, over 20 years how bad it was because there was a lot of whitewashing. But I think, uh, I think the, the nice Germans or the fact that the Germans were in this movie mostly portrayed sympathetically right. was, the, um, was a thing you wouldn't see now. Right? Would you go see a World War II movie now and and have any any German no. be like, yes, I'm more or less a reasonable man? Not unless it was sort of a spoofy send up of like Hogan's Heroes. They would either be like, I'm on your side, or I mean, it would be it'd be played much more broadly than right. this, which is kind of like I'm doing my job. I'm a I'm a member of the German military, but I'm not a monster. I uh, I remember that thinking it was really interesting the scenes around the train like they're i mean like there's a lot of like interesting social interactions like the ss guy like with his feet up on the bench and yeah. they, they uh kind which, of which doesn't seem like something an ss soldier would do that that seems sort of casual that might be pedantic they but, had a lot of yeah. ss privilege and then when mm-hmm. they get off there's like a hitler youth kid in like oh, yeah. short shorts and like handing a lady out handing out flyers <laughs> and i was like are those like like true believers did you right. say short shorts yeah, he's got like black think... shorts that are like, they're like real up high. No, <laughs> short shorts. Maybe I miss. Maybe I'm misremembering. I don't know. No, they were they were pretty short, but that was the style in '63. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys think about uh, what sort of tunnel person you would be? And this is a little bit guy adjacent, but like when people were popping up out of the tunnel and then running for the forest, uh-huh. uh, a few of them would, you know, throw their bag up, pop up, look around, right. periscope like, and then run for the forest. And then other people would just get up and run, trusting the rope signal to tell them that no one was watching. I feel like yeah, I would have a hard time running for the forest, not looking behind me at any point. <laughs> and that was some of the most nerve-wracking uh, sequences of, of the film for me, was, yeah. was seeing all the differences in how people approach that strategy of escape. Yeah. I would have been the guy that went back and found the uh, surveyor and was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> you really left us out to dry here. We're 14 feet shy. 
Yeah, they kind of started this is supposed a little to be an bit accurate of that, survey. but they were like, you know, don't like don't waste time arguing about that. We're yeah. fucking jai. Yeah, yeah. So let's just go. Yeah. Well, and the surveyor ended up being the one that attracted the attention of the guard in the he first place. He really blew it because oh, he right. had the big a white paper package, which he, seems like he a dumb wrapped thing. his yeah. bag yeah. in bubble wrap. Yeah, you, <laughs> gotta, you can't you do gotta that go with a low albedo <laughs> package to take in your. <laughs> but also, why did any of those guys have packages? I mean, you know, it's every like, yeah. single one of them has a has a an item that they're carrying with them. Well, like they talk about provisions and rations, like, I guess. Oh, that's a good point. Sandwiches. They had some stuff. Yeah, yeah. they had their sandwiches. But in terms of, like, <laughs> Well, when which... they make the action figures, they want them each to have an accessory, have an accessory. too. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, in terms of which gu- tunnel guy you would be, I think that's a really interesting question, because, of course, there were hundreds of guys that helped build it that didn't go. Yeah. And not just because it was cut short, but there were a lot of people that either opted out or weren't chosen you want to talk about darkness unseen in this film like they never cut back to a barracks of a guy washing his hands after having dug the tunnel knowing that everyone's leaving but him right Right. yeah because everybody was in on it there wasn't a single person in the camp yeah it was just like unaware that this was happening is it part of it that like they needed to be plausible like they do all that testing of like can you can you present your papers and kind of carry on the the like functionary oh, like you have to audition almost plausibly. Yeah. I'm sure anybody that could speak German or French had uh, had a better chance than yeah. than uh, like somebody with a deep Southern accent. I've right. always wondered like did, hey. like would a would a slightly bad French accent be detectable to an average German security officer? Like because their French is not perfect at all. Right when they're like on the train and they're saying like. Je suis Francais OC. Right. <laughs> they got you know the guy hands him hands him their papers back. Like I, uh, I guess I just I just don't know because I don't live in in Europe. But like, did, would would they know or were we just asked it, to suspend disbelief there? Totally depend on who you yeah. encountered, right? I mean, there were there were there was an entire movie going audience that was expected to to accept James Coburn as yeah. Australian. So uh, a- accent sensitivity isn't. Right. But, but like that's a big scene in Inglorious Bastards, right? Where he he's finally discovered by the way he holds up his fingers to indicate three. Right. Whether he I felt like a nod to this a little bit. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That because he gets busted bit. at the end with... Yeah, was he the one that earlier he, had said... Yeah. Like, McDonald's that's how you're going to get find out. Yeah, he was... He was Portraying the the Nazi officer in uh-huh. the in the practice run, right, right, and like, and that undoes him. Good in the luck. End. Yeah, it's very good. That's a great line reading. Right. <laughs> good luck. So is that guy just going around saying that to everybody, just testing them, or, or he's he's been he's been scrambled because they know a huge jailbreak has taken place. I mean, the thing that you, that you have to wonder is any <clears throat> any male civilian. In Germany at this point. Yeah, they're all like of war fighting age. Right? Yeah, right. So why aren't you in the army? Yeah. Would be the automatic question that you would ask anytime you saw a 35-year-old guy walking around. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, so you I would dress up as an old. But like they didn't have to. <laughs> hey, you're never too old for the Volkster. <laughs> why aren't you? Why aren't you a little later? <laughs> or get like a cane or something and act like, you know, you clearly have some, some sort of malady. Yeah, that's see, that's a great idea. Yeah. Why, why more people didn't yeah. affect a limp get some, trying to escape? Put some tar on a couple of your teeth. Be like, I have these teeth. I can't be in the military. <laughs> I'd be no good. But, you know, they, they, uh, they did check papers of people just 
in Germany at the time. It was part of the... Just walking around? Yeah, it was just part life. of the control system of of the Nazis to have everybody always spying on each other and... It's kind of like how you have to show your driver's license at the airport now, man. Yeah, man. It's kind of like when the cops pull you over and they want to see your ID. It's bullshit. Uh, I liked how the uh, how it was like you know one by air, two by air, two by sea. One guy on a motorcycle, guy on a Coburn, the Aussie on his bicycle. The Which guys was on the genius. train. The bicycle. I that was absolutely. Some of the best escape for me is just like, oh, you get on a bike. Nobody's going to stop you. Bling, yeah. bling. Just to get on a bike. You could ride for weeks. Yeah. Yeah. What a, a good fun point. trip. That plane escape scene was fun too. Yeah. Though uh, starting the motor of an aircraft without being able to see has got to be the scariest thing right. possible, right? Yeah. Don't go that way once you hear Oof. the motor, the engine crank. Yeah. I thought Pleasance was great at portraying uh, someone who's blind or has severely compromised vision. Like that seems like, like there's act drunk as a difficult thing to do. And then act blind has got to be a totally different cat. Like he do. It was great at that. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Those flying scenes were gorgeous. What kind of plane plane was that? I mean that, that plane. That plane was real, but it's, it's T sixes all the time. Yeah. That's right. So the, the, all the planes on the runway there Uh on the taxiway, they were all T six Texans. Which is weird that at that point, which are American. Okay. Uh, and th- those are also the stand-in planes for Japanese Zeros in a lot of these movies. Yeah, like, right. They were American trainers that, that we had a lot of. Yeah. But you would think a movie of this kind of budget that was filming in Germany in could have Germany. come up with a couple of yeah, that's Bach too. Wolfs or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, I liked how low he was flying, too. Just sort of skirting the treetops. Uh, which There's know. not like radar cover to be worried about at this point, is there? Like in, no. within German airspace, they didn't have radar, did they? Who the fuck is running that airbase? Also, they radar. never launch a fighter after the guy. They're, they just yeah. watch him go. Is it just that he gets too much of a head start? They would never be able to catch him. Well, it feels I, like he'd want to at least try. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you would be, you know, shot or something. That's You're clearly like, well, the slowest plane on the yeah, field that they nothing. took. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I ran out with a pistol. He really had the jump on us, so. Yeah. They they did have radar in World War II, but maybe no, not like ground radar at a at a training airbase. I thought the British were the only ones with radar. Is that a, I mean, am radar, I wrong about that? Well, radar was invented and developed and and perfected throughout the course of the war. Huh. So, I mean, they it was like it was uh, in its infancy. Yeah, as plane crashes go, though, for the time, not bad. They came yeah. in pretty hot. And got clipped by that tree. I mean, it was believable enough. Yeah, they wrecked that plane. Yeah. <laughs> so is James Garner a Eagle Squadron guy? Like he's an American in a who joined the British... Canadian. He joined the Canadian Air Force to oh. fight before we entered the war. Wow. So there were there were quite a few of those yeah. American pilots. He's like, he's Ben Affleck, but right that, exactly that didn't go. Was fight in Pearl Harbor. Well, also. also in the Doolittle Raid, and also in the. <laughs> but there was one of the people that escaped. One of the actual people that escaped uh, during the during the real escape was a Doolittle Raider. Wow! One of those Doolittle Raiders got made it through China, got repatriated, wow, and then went to Europe and and flew as a bomber pilot, 
got shot down and was at the camp and was part of this whole escape. Where is that movie? Holy I mean, what a life. <laughs> well, it's Pearl Harbor starring Ben Affleck, except uh, except mm. uh, we didn't really focus on him as much as we could have. Yeah, that guy, uh, incredible life. Incredible. So how many people got out? Is it 70 something? Oh, 76 and three of them actually made it. Wow. And in real life, the three that made it, two of them were Norwegians and one of them was Dutch. So no Americans or British or anything like that survived. Hmm. And presumably because they probably had pretty good language. Yeah, they they could blend in a little bit better. You know, it, it struck me that like the escape in Europe is greatly aided by everybody's like European heritage. Like, I guess most of them are British, but like the, you know, the couple of Americans, like the, like if you're like, you couldn't have this movie in a war in Afghanistan, like right. nobody would buy it. And, or in the Japanese theater, that was the, right. That was the thing about, um, about the Doolittle Raider movie was these guys were in China and they stood out like sore thumbs. Yeah. The, it wasn't uh, going to yeah. be, it's not possible to hide them or deny they'd been there. Well, and there's no fence in, bridge on the river quiet it's like where are you gonna go right right <laughs> dork <laughs> yeah i like the resistance scene in the cafe yeah that cut that i kind of had forgotten about that and that took me by surprise a bit when uh when coburn got up the phone rang and they basically he was like you might want to I love the physical the comedy here. of that scene where the two guys do the elevator behind the bar <laughs> <laughs> and get behind it. Yeah. And then and he's like, it's oh, a nice yeah, flourish. We're doing, yeah, yeah. We're doing the canoe? Oh, cool. <laughs> My daughter loves that bit. <laughs> yeah, but that was a straight up drive by. Yeah. You know? Yeah. These guys are just having some. What were they having, by the way? It was something. They're like having Pernod. Yeah, little, uh, little. Yeah. No, right. But you mix it with it's a, it's water. A, it's a pastis. Yeah, it's a little, a little like um, a little like uh, absinthe. Okay. Pernod makes an absinthe, but I don't think it's their absinthe that they were drinking. But it's like I think everybody in France is either like a Pernod person or a Ricard person. They all like have a feeling about which uh-huh. is the better one to drink, and they are owned by liquor mega conglomerate Pernod Ricard. <laughs> So it's like, are you more of a graveyard man? You'll just yeah. pour them both into the same glass. Every nation of Europe has an an anisette, a little like aperitif, right? And they all taste exactly the same. And I'm sorry to say this to all the people out there who are like, no, ouzo is amazing. Oof. They all just are. They taste like licorice, and they are awful. Was They're, that realistic though for three German officers in an afternoon just sitting down at a cafe and having some drinks? Like it, everything just seems so. It, none of it seemed like wartime. Well, they were occupied France, so those they some of them might have been Vichy Frenchies in uh, German uniforms. I think hmm. I don't I don't think that we got enough of them talking to establish whether they were of German or French extraction. But but before D Day, there were Germans all throughout France, and it was kind of like considered a posh. Uh, place to sit out the war right because they're they're not on the russian front they're just there right having per no yeah sitting out the war al fresco (laughs) little did they know they really uh not great reflexes on those on those officers when they stand up and see whoa that guy's got a belt-fed machine gun coming out of the back of that citroen (laughs) what So the three Coburn makes it right, presumably, mm-hmm. and the three and it's uh, Bronson and the, and the other guy, and their rowboat, which again was the just rowboat. genius. Yeah, 
They had a really easy time of it. They rode right up to that Swedish boat. And... <laughs> Did it, had it happened to have a ladder yeah. right there at water those... level? Trick Swedish boats where they uh, drop the panels on the sides and it's suddenly a German warship. Sturgis paid the captain of that bigger boat to turn around and, and position in the right light yeah. for that scene. I kept waiting on a Nazi jet ski to come around the corner. There was a, there was a goof on IMDb about that scene, too, because there there's like automated crane uh, container cranes in the background of that and of that scene. And that that's like a 1950s and... and and uh, more recent invention, like oh. containerization, wasn't invented until after the war, oh. which is like so weird to think about. Like, I mean, like the biggest project of moving crap all over the planet, and they didn't have shipping containers. <laughs> like no, they just crates, had stevedores, like manually unloading boxes. unloading ships. It's a good union job. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> That's why uh, stevedores are always throwing their wooden shoes into the uh, into the container cranes these days. Well, if you haven't heard this show before, I think one of the things you have to do on a movie podcast is review the film, and for every film... We, we... didn't know that when we first started yeah. our movie podcast. How, how many episodes did we go before we figured out we had to I think it was them. two. I think it was super it early. Yeah, it wasn't many. I think it was yeah. like 12. What? Yeah. No. Because so, there was... Uh, we had a, a listener make like a spreadsheet of all... All our rankings and share it with us recently. Oh no! I think it was, and he I kind of dragged us for not reviewing a bunch of the movies. <laughs> That's like really I, helpful. There was one episode, and I might be wrong. That I remember you guys, one of you went through your spiel, but never said what the actual rating was. Oh yeah, well we cut the boring stuff out. I, I might be wrong, but it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, it's like you, you reviewed yeah, it, we, but you didn't. We suck at this, Chuck. We're bad. <laughs> We've learned a lot while uh, making what else this has show. Bothered me about your show. Uh, all right, Adam. Adam, take yeah, it away. So That's for, the one that bothers the, me. The rule is, like for every war film we discuss, so too is attached a, a custom rating system. We mm -hmm. do that so that films aren't compared to one another. Right. Uh, and for... Yeah, which is like totally ignored by this guy with this spreadsheet. It's not like he has different <laughs> columns for all of our different rating systems. Yeah, that guy's got it all wrong. He's reverting it to stars, and that's not what they are, man. Oh, no, he needs to have a new column on his spreadsheet that... Uh, that uh, describes the the rating. Is he uh, doing method. rating erasure and and substituting with stars? Because that yeah. is fucked up. I uh, I actually, <laughs> I mean, just to, just to throw off all the math, I'm uh, retroactively reviewing all of the movies that we did not give reviews to. One star. <laughs> <laughs> they all sucked. Yeah, tough but fair. Uh, I think we talked a lot about the tone of this film and maybe the issues we had with it being not quite as dark as war films typically are for their time. And there is an item in the film, I think, that embodies that feeling the most. It's a scene between Blythe and Henley where Blythe is <clears throat> making his shitty tea and he can't do it without the milk. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, in a POW camp, you can make tea that's all right. But if you really want to class it up, you need the milk. And almost immediately, Blythe returns with the milk and changes the whole game. And it's... Henley the, returns with the milk. And Henley returns with the milk and <laughs> changes the whole game. And it's really, like, that's the sensibility of the film. This is, this is milk in your World War II film tea. This is like <laughs> an enjoyable war film hang yeah. that is not meant to 
evoke a sense of roughing it or or darkness or hardship in yeah, any way. There's no menace, not much at least. Yeah, and that is one aspect to the film that is unfortunate for a film that I approached expecting greatness. Yeah. The other aspect to it is that we have been watching a lot of ensemble films where you get hyper-efficient character development. And I think one of the ways that this film does not succeed entirely for me is that these characters are defined by what they do and not who they are. Right. And to me, a nickname is not a substitution for a character. Yeah. And for as much time as this film takes to give you plot... And for what you guys believe to be deep character development, I didn't get that feeling much. Yeah. And a lot of these characters felt the same to me other than their nickname. And so, like, while I liked the film a lot, I did not love it. And those are two ways that I didn't. And so for that reason, I'm going to give it a good but not great four cans of milk. Four cans. Four <clears throat> that's still a pretty thick rating. That's some, yeah. that's some thick milk. That's the <laughs> yeah, that's whole milk. I don't like tea. I don't like milk in my tea either. You're crazy. Oh, milk in your tea is great. The best. Really? Yeah. It really is. You need yeah. to you need to reprogram your brain a little bit because you spent a lot of time being the enemy of milk yeah. in all things. It's true. Now that milk is back on the menu, boys. All right. I think you should. Uh, I think you should give it another chance. Yeah. Let's have some milky tea together later. Great. I'm into it. All right. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen 
a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a, a classic for me and one that I, I love rewatching. I have nostalgia for watching it with my mom and dad when I was a kid, and I feel like it's uh, it it's still great. And uh, I I love all the characters in it and um I think that uh I think it's it's going to be one of the movies that I revisit throughout my life. So I'll give it uh four and a half cans of milk. Hmm. So I found myself when I watch movies for Movie Crush through a more studied lens and a more critical eye than just every other time I've seen this film. Uh-huh. I found myself liking this one a little less than I had in the past. It felt a little long and a little too light and goofy at times with the McQueen stuff. I think I would have, like I mentioned earlier, I, it could have used a little more menace, a little more like show the mole losing his mind in that cooler a little bit. Um, don't just say, well, he's going mad. And then he <laughs> has his one scene where he, you know, runs and, you know, does suicide by cop basically. Um, so I found myself a little more critical this time for a movie that in the past I just sort of enjoyed thoroughly. So I'm going to, I'm going to take it back to, uh, I'm going to take it back to four cans of milk, which is still high, but I previously probably would have been in the four and a half range. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to be influenced by me. I'm not. Good. <laughs> In no way is he influenced by you. Good. <laughs> yeah, I'm. <clears throat> I agree with you, Chuck. I have watched this movie a bunch of times. This was like late night television with my yeah. dad. Um, watching. I've seen this movie on a black and white TV. I've seen it on an early color TV and. Um, <clears throat> How does it look in black and white? Because I feel like it's. It's a very spectacular movie, and you you shoot a little differently for color than you do for black and white. But this is in the era when I think they probably had to think about both. Yeah, Panavision is is not like super snappy colors. It's all pretty muted. Yeah, and uh, I mean the colors are beautiful, but they're not. It's they're not like hyper real. They're not and, uh, Avengers Endgame or Thor Ragnarok right. level. But at the time, during the black and white television era, you didn't really think about it. You just, that was what you got. Right. Yeah. You get what you get and you don't get upset. That's right. Um, <clears throat> but watching it this time, I realized, yeah, it's a, it's like a boy's life movie. Um, they're at camp. Camp isn't that bad. They're away from their moms and dads, which is sad. <laughs> and the beds are uncomfortable. But, you know, there's, we never even, 
There's never those even trick like a, beds that you fall through yeah, three bunks. Yeah, on. like that moment is so goofy. Yeah, it's goofy, and the camera really lingers on him being like, yeah. Um, but you know, we never talk about is that. The uh, comeuppance that Cavendish gets for doing a bad survey and for and for attracting the attention of the guard. Cavendish yeah. could get a lot worse in this movie. I think. Yeah, um, named after my favorite variety of banana, though. <laughs> Boy, cool. that one really took off. Yeah. <laughs> But we never, you know, we never confront lice. We never, we never see a latrine, right? They don't. We don't oh, yeah. see them drink, uh, digging, or cleaning a latrine or latrine at all. It's just not even in the, in the movie. Uh, and so, so, the lack of toilets. Why are really... you so obsessed with poops and peas, John? <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm auditioning to be on Greatest Gen. Uh, but I but I feel like that's an example of how much I mean. There's a lot of this movie that's like, no, the war was just it was just a lark, but this movie really really washed it clean, and so it so yeah you have to ask like what what is the message of this w- movie vis a vis war, and it's from that era of just like war is good sport, and this is right before Vietnam kicked off. Sixty three oh, yeah. is still in a time when the greatest generation is still young and still dominating the culture and we still believe that war is is just and that we defeated the Hun. And we're only a few years away from the country taking a dramatic turn in how it thinks about war. And so you could get away with a movie like this. And I think if this movie came out in 68, it would be, it would start to look like uh, John Wayne's Green Berets where the culture would have responded to it like, this is corny. Right. Um, we The country evolved so much in the next five years. Yeah. That, that, um, does, pe- the, does it the fact that it comes out in the era before that mean that like there's no, there's no sense even subconsciously that they're working in defiance of a, a shift in the, in the mood. So it doesn't have that corniness to it. There's no, def- there's no defiance in it because it's because the, I mean, the only alternative culture at the time was like beat, beat poets or whatever. But there was no nobody was making a critique of the U.S. war machine, right? Except like Eisenhower, kind of generally saying, "Hey, look out for." Hey, this. I could see there being a potential downside to this, yeah. but like a bunch of British guys in a prison camp, like coming, making a Rube Goldberg yeah. escape machine. It was just it was just for fun, and so. So the a three hour caper movie with a with no complexity was harder to watch this time yeah. and just surrender to. I had and maybe it's because we've been doing this this podcast and looking at war movies. I've started to wonder what are what is this movie saying about war? And this movie isn't saying much. That said, as a boy, the idea of Escaping from a prison camp and trying to make it across Germany mm-hmm. without getting caught and not speaking German was a like from watching this movie for the first time when I was probably seven or eight, that became a constant fantasy game for me. <laughs> it was like play. a foundational element of your personality. It really is, right? I mean, every <laughs> That's time I... this movie was made for, though, I think looking yeah. back, it was made for like dads and their sons to go see sort of a ad- fun adventure film. Yeah. Anytime I was alone in town or in the in Anchorage anywhere walking alone, I immediately was like, 
I'm in Nazi Germany <laughs> and I'm going to make it all the way home without anybody, uh, you know, figuring out that I'm an escaped prisoner. That's adorable. Big time, right? <laughs> I still think about it. When I lay in bed last night, I was like, okay, how would I make it from here <laughs> if I was in enemy territory? Few people compare Max von Kahn with Nazi Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I have to, you know, I have to ding it um, for the reasons that you described. So I'm going to say uh, that it's, um, you know, when you're 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 somewhere else, you're you're making some tea, you want a little milk, and um, someone's playing is there somebody playing a trumpet trombone. in the next room? <laughs> uh, you're looking for some milk, and you open up the little mini fridge in the dressing room, and there's a there's a thing of milk in there, but it's open. <laughs> yeah. And so you open it up, you lift it up, and you kind of give it a sniff to see. I was hoping this would happen to see if uh, if it's like still good because it know, could have been in there for Funny you bring weeks. that up because we we're in the midst of our friendly fire tour as of this record, and we were in a gr- in a green room and found just such a carton of milk in uh, Seattle. I want to say, and I wasn't having coffee, but somehow I was the one that got nominated to smell the milk. Mm. How did that happen? That's your call sign. <laughs> milk Sm- smeller. Smell the milk. Uh, so I'm going to give it... This three, is milk smeller. That's a big 10 for. Three unopened cans Whoa. of milk and one open can of milk. Suspicious open can. Where you're like, hmm, this it could be a full and fresh and delicious can, but there's the, the uncertainty oh. whether or not this can... It's been sitting out. Uh, and poquito sospechoso. Yes. Um, great rating. So the other thing we always do on Friendly Fire is uh, is we pick the, the guy that we spotted in the film that we most identify with. Uh, Chuck, do you want to lead us off? Who's your guy? Yeah, so uh, there's a moment. You know, they're rehearsing Christmas carols through a lot of this movie. To, to cover up that they're like banging on yeah on ductwork that they're manufacturing yeah. surreptitiously exactly. nothing <laughs> covers that up than like nine guys singing silent night five <laughs> gold rings clink uh so there was uh there was one of those moments where um who who is the guy is it cavendish the is, surveyor yeah the the choir leader yeah and he, the yeah the oh shot yeah is from, surveyor and choir leader yeah. not that great at either <laughs> <laughs> the the shot was from behind him facing the choir, and I don't know if you remember, but there was this one guy on the left of the frame that, by all accounts, should have been just hidden behind the guy in front of him, and he was completely leaning out to the left <laughs> to show his face, yeah. and was was not uh, very expressive. He did he looked like a like a bad extra. Leaning way out to the side. I don't know if you noticed. I that totally guy. noticed that guy. But, That's a great uh, guy. Yeah, that that was my guy. That would have been me trying to get a little screen time. Mom, look there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, my guy is Tunnel King Willie, uh, who is the there's there's the two diggers. Danny is the Charles Bronson character, and Willie is the other the other one who really. Uh, I mean, like, you know, it's kind of a thankless thing that he does, but he really, like, goes out on a limb for Danny and really, really cares about him and makes sure that he gets through the tunnel, but also in a way that, like, he can cope with. And I think, uh, I don't know, I, I, like, it's one of those, it, 
like you i think you guys made some good points about the kind of lack of characterization <laughs> in the film but i thought that that was a very like human and 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 humane thing and i liked that they had that kind of that bond with each other that that they that they could trust each other that much and i thought it was so awesome that they like you know that Willie saw Danny through the escape, and then they actually make it in the end. Yeah. So uh, Willie was my guy for being for doing Danny that solid. How great would it have been if the continuation of this movie was those guys just in a relationship together in Switzerland? Yeah. Just like walking down this cobblestone street, holding hands. <laughs> well, so from the beginning, hey, of the movie, you said you'd go get some milk and bread. <laughs> <laughs> when they first appear, you didn't. You're dead. <laughs> this ain't over. <laughs> <laughs> when they first appear, there uh, is at the beginning of the movie, right? They're always together, these two, and yeah. there is an extremely homoerotic feeling to their relationship. Yeah, they're similarly sized. <clears throat> they're 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 very touchy with each other yeah. from the beginning. They're the Tunnel Kings. I mean, and come on. They have a le- they have they have several moments, including that one where which Bronson's one's the like, tunnel though? <laughs> <laughs> it's not me, baby. <laughs> I'm the pick. They switch off. They're both diggers. It's pretty clear who's the bottom here. Um, There's the moment where Brunson takes the shower, and I think it's um, it's the Australian guy that's like, "I'm a lifeguard. I'm watching him take a shower." Yeah, yeah. Which uh, I'd be watching too, man. Yeah. Charles Bronson with his shirt off back then. uh... Leathering up my crank. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Anyways, you were I'm making sorry, a point, John. John. Oh, no, I think the point's made. <laughs> I really like Willie in that scene, Ben, because he like his encouragement is never shaming. Yeah, there's no judgment of this being a big problem for Danny. And it's never made into a, you're going to fuck us if you don't go through the tunnel. Like, like, kind of a lot is riding on you, buddy. It's always like, you dug the tunnel, man. It's only right that you go through. Just summon the courage for the five minutes yeah, you needed. We're and get through, and then we're yeah. going to be out. And yeah. And he, that was an area that it could have gone dark and, and didn't. He right. really cares about him. And in a way, he's the that's the only relationship between anybody in this movie where you feel, except for Garner and Pleasance. Yeah, Garner yeah. and Pleasance have a very similar. Yeah, right. very sweet relationship. And. They also play chess with each other, so there's another element to it. <laughs> so it's a very three-dimensional human relationship is what I'm trying to say. So who's your guy? Did you already... Oh, I haven't done my guy, no. Okay, well, I mean... I'll, I'll do my ahead. guy. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. Uh, my guy is the, uh, is the German officer who is like in charge of the camp, and... Um, uh, not not the commandant, but mm-hmm. the but the officer. He's the tallest guy in the movie, and he's the day to day running the camp guy. Yeah, he's got um, a lot of the. So the commandant has gold epaulets, which means he's like a general staff officer in the Luftwaffe. This guy has red epaulets, which means he's in the Luftwaffe, but he's a artillery officer. Mm. So something happened in his career where he ended up here. This isn't like. This wasn't his original job. Well, he was uh, working at a uh, secret sub base in, in the North Sea, and he bullseyed an American submarine as it was leaving their, their compound. And <laughs> they're like, you get any job you want. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but of all the, I mean, we've talked a lot about the kind of humanizing of the Germans, but this guy is just a mensch. 
right? He's the one with the pitchfork, right? But he's clearly doing it not intending to stab anybody. He's doing it as a as theater. I guess I gotta use the damn pitchfork. Yeah, like here we go. He's the one that recognizes. He pulls guys out of the line. He pulls. Yeah. Pulled Bronson out of the line because and he knew him by name. He's like he's like memorized the Facebook of the incoming class of Stalag Luft three or whatever. Right, and, but he's he's never cruel to anybody. He's the guy that discovers the the tunnel. Like yeah. he's the main. He's never punitive. Never. He's the main sort of German antagonist. But you also get the feeling that you could just sit around with this guy and he's like a. He just I liked him from the moment he arrived on the screen and I and. Like through the whole movie, the one person that I felt bad about in this movie was when uh, when the escape was made. Like he he was gonna. Although wait, no, that's the best part about this guy. The commandant loses his job, and he still ha- He's still standing yeah. there on the porch when the new commandant comes. Like he's he just sort of he's there getting it done. Never never does anybody a mean. Yeah. Only in the Great Escape can you be like. The the Nazi running the prisoner of war camp, great guy. <laughs> He's just really kind of a sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of there being a Nazi mensch yeah. Right? Yeah. is He's not a, a Nazi, hell of though. a combination. He's not a Nazi. He's, a, he's, he's just a German doing his German job. Yeah. yeah you're uh, always at great pains to make that distinction, John. <laughs> I know. I know. Both sides. You see my guy in maybe the most stressful part of the film, which is the train station scene. And the reason it's so stressful in that moment is because they're so close to the end, and yet they're all together in in such close proximity to being caught. Like, they're out in the open, and yet they're confined, and yet they're about to go into an even more confined space. Mm-hmm. So the entire scene is very pregnant with guys, like, looking at each other, like, going, when, is, when the fuck is this train going to be here? It's nuts. And when the train finally arrives, so too does my guy, because we cut to a shot of the of train coming at screen. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is my. Adam, fi- Adam, I heard you yelling <laughs> yeah. in your in your uh, hotel room last night. <laughs> <laughs> there is a guy standing a foot away from the rails as the steam engine comes through and does not flinch or move whatsoever, <laughs> and it comes a foot away from his face. You admired that because you were watching it on your iPad screen and you ran out of the room. <laughs> I think that guy low key steals the scene uh-huh. because of that. Like you're that that feeling of dread of oh my god the train's finally coming, and then things just don't feel right in that scene at all because there are Nazis there and there are cops there and so are our heroes and we're waiting and just waiting and waiting and then when the train comes like it's only going to get worse and people don't look like they're acting right. And one of the ways, one of the things that embodies that is that guy just not moving next to the train, and it's creepy. Yeah, I don't think I noticed that. And that guy's my guy for it. Yeah. Is the implication that the commandant is going to be put to death over this? Sent to the Russian front or something, yeah. Okay. I mean, he was a known quantity, too, and I think he did get sent to the Russian front in, in real life. Kind of a, a menschy Nazi. Yeah. He wasn't as menschy. <laughs> uh you guys should pick another film. The way we pick our movie on Friendly Fire is we roll a hundred-sided die. Man, I wanted to see that thing. And so, well, I have it right here. So here we go. We're going to roll the hundred-sided die. Ready? <laughs> wow. That's some stellar Foley work. Yeah. <laughs> 
this podcasting thing doesn't work yet. You've got a job in production sound. Oh, and you're dripping coffee on your shelf. <laughs> Was it worth it, John? Was it worth it? 72. <laughs> 72 is a 2018 movie about a war correspondent called A Private War. Oh, this is that one with uh, what's her nose? Brand new, right? Yeah, it's brand new. Uh, what's the lady? What's the lady in that called? <laughs> this is going great. I'm trying to click on the link and it won't. It doesn't work because it's the stupid app. I'll look it up. I've never heard of this movie. Uh oh. Kate Blanchett, Emily Blunt. Like, Rachel Vice. Uh, Rosamund Pike. It's mm. uh, it's Rosamund Pike playing a, a war correspondent. She's got like the eye patch on the poster. Oh. This was on every bus bench in L.A. for like one week. Interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't really know anything about this one, but yeah, uh, I, look. I think I basically one. put it on our on our list on the strength of it being the bus ads worked, huh? A a bus ad movie with the word war in the title. So I guess sometimes it's all it takes to cover up part of Rosamund Pike's face. Yeah, for the film. Uh, one of the most celebrated war correspondents of our time, Mari Colvin, is an utterly fearless and rebellious spirit driven to the front line of conflicts across the globe to give voice to the voiceless. Wow. So uh, that'll right. be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, give Based uh, on the poster, it doesn't appear that she gives sight to the sightless. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sick burn. Uh, well, uh, I, I, re- I regret the that. Toilet is a great way to <laughs> yeah, finish this. I, I episode. love that Roderick just left the show. <laughs> See ya. Uh, See ya, John. Great, amazing show. Love to be the podcast. Really big time, just. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I guess we'll leave it with Rob's, Rob's, Rob's from there. So for John Roderick, Adam Pranica, and the great Chuck Bryant, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I like this little tradition, recording a show with these guys crossing over. I'm always curious to see if they edit theirs down in a different way. So I I might even listen to their version rather than my own. Uh, Those guys are great, though. They do a good job on that show. Um, You can check out Ben and Adam if you like what they're throwing down. And if you're a Star Trek fan, you would love The Greatest Generation. Uh, That's the show that really put those guys on the map. Uh, And if you like Mr. John Roderick, well... I mean, he has a host of things. You can listen to the Omnibus podcast, which is great. You can listen to uh, Roadwork. You can listen to On the Line with John Roderick. Is there another one, Ramsey? I feel like John has four shows. Oh, well, Friendly Fire. There you have it. So uh, those are John's four podcasts, everyone. That makes him a true professional. And uh, you can follow them on Facebook, uh, which is where they do their Friendly Fire stuff, hashtag Friendly Fire. Uh, Or you can follow them individually uh, Adam is at Cut4Time, C-U-T-F-O-R-T-I-M-E. Roderick is at John Roderick. That's a power move. And then Ben Harrison is at Benjamin R. And that is B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-A-H-R, everyone. I'm going to have to ask him what the hell that's all about. Surely that's not a pirate reference. If so, then I'm never speaking to Benjamin again. All right. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that uh, discussion on The Great Escape. And uh, I'll talk to you next time.
Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts oh hi i'm rachel zoe and my podcast climbing in heels is back and better than ever You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.